Meanwhile, Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations proudly present Dime Store Radio Theater! Our first installment this week, Box 13, with Last Will and Nursery Rhyme. Box 13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Dear Dan, I'm inviting you up to Fair Oaks to spend the last weekend with me. Forget your Box 13 gag for a while and grab yourself a little vacation. There's not much I can offer in the way of excitement or adventure. But if you'll really go any place or do anything, you might like to see the crumbling grandeur of the last last of the Kenworths. You know how to get there and I'll be waiting. How about it? Ted. <laughs> vacation, the man said. You know, someday I'm really going to take a vacation. But this wasn't it. Box 13 is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Children's Books. Like most parents, choosing the right literature for your children to read can be a challenge. And reading the books yourself just sounds like homework. That's why the Acme Brand line of children's books are guaranteed to be the perfect reading material for your children. Just match the number in the corner of the book to your child's age, and you'll know that no challenging... Strange, sophisticated, or critical ideas will ever enter your child's mind until you're ready to tell them yourself. Acme Brand Children's Books. They're almost like reading. Now, we return you to Box 13, here on Dime Store Radio Theater. And now, back to Box 13 and Dan Holliday's newest adventure, Last Will and Nursery Rhyme. You should go, Mr. Holliday. You need a rest. Oh, Susie, every time I go for a rest, something happens to me. But what can happen at a nice, quiet place like Fair Oaks? Gee, from what your friend Ted says about it, it's just the spot to take it easy. Mm, you sure of that, huh? Uh-huh. Why, you'll come back all full of vim and vinegar. <laughs> okay, Susie, you talk me into it. Forward my mail to Fair Oaks, care of Ted Kenworth. It was pleasant. 200-mile drive through the countryside. I was forgetting all about Box 13. <laughs> it chased after me all the way up to Fair Oaks. I got there in the evening, and Ted was waiting for me. Maybe I should explain Ted and Fair Oaks. You see, Ted was my closest friend at college, and, well, he had inherited Fair Oaks, one of those big, overdone houses people were fond of building in the 1890s. It looked like an insane wedding cake, gingerbread balconies, all running around and contributing nothing to the architectural value of the place. Anyway, I parked on the drive, walked up the stairs with Ted and into the house. Oh, I'm glad you came, Dan. I've been wanting to have you up here for a long time, but I guess I never got around to it. Hey, what do you do for space here? 
Suppose you have house full of guests and you've only got 20 rooms. Yeah. Well, don't worry. I won't have it long. <laughs> what do you mean? Come on in here. It's the only room with chairs. Hey, why the crepe hanging? Hmm? Oh, I'm selling, Dan. Selling? Oh, but you're kidding. No, I wish I was kidding, but can't keep this place up. You broke? Flatter than last week's pancakes. Oh, but I thought you inherited a money lot of money. Money from Uncle Thaddeus? No. Not a thin, round dime. Oh, now, wait a minute. He had a thousand bucks for every breath he took. Did he? I'm asking. I'm telling. No, Dan. All he left me was this house. Are you sure? There we go again. Look, fella, I've been asked that question a million times. All he left was the house. It doesn't seem right. Wasn't he a millionaire? Uh-huh. Then where's his money? Gone. Finished. Kaput. But look, where could a guy like your Uncle Thaddeus spend all of his money? That's the gold-plated question. He never spent a nickel if he could help it. Okay, then the money's still with us. <laughs> Dan, you kill me. You're so tied up with fiction that you look for a deep, dark plot and everything. Yeah, but this makes no sense. It does when you check and find out that Uncle Thaddeus lived the last five years on credit. Credit? You mean with all of his dough... Ah, uh -huh, that's right. He... Well, there must be a record of the money. I had help looking for it. Help? Who? Uncle Sam. Oh. Income tax, inheritance tax. If they couldn't find the dough, how could I? No, Dan, Uncle Thaddeus fooled everybody. He didn't have a nickel. Well, it sounded offbeat to me. Uncle Thaddeus lived close to his vest. And he had had money at one time, lots of it. He never went anyplace, did anything. But a cool three million or so just curls up and evaporates. Or did it? Anyway, I thought about it. Later that night... Oh, why don't you stop, Dan? You're supposed to take a vacation and you're beating your brains out. Now listen, put it together and what have you got? Uncle Thaddeus, practically a hermit. He's known to have money, but when he dies, all he leaves is this, well, this oversized lean-to. Dan, I've looked through the whole house. I know it like the back of my hand. I lived here when I was a kid after Mother and Dad died. What about the will? Uncle's? Yeah. Well, nothing about money in it. Oh, uh, excuse me, Ted. Oh, it's okay. Come on in, Helen. Well, I didn't knock or ring the bell. I didn't know you had company. Oh, it's all right. Helen, this is Dan Holliday. Dan, this is Helen Stark. How are you? Fine, thanks. Uh, Helen's clearing out odds and ends for me, Dan. Odds and ends? <laughs> well, I was Thaddeus Kenworth's secretary. That is, once in a while I was. When he got behind in cataloging books, I came in and did it for him. Oh. Sit down, Helen. Join the wake. Well, I haven't much time. I want to sort out some papers. You can look them over tomorrow, Ted. I don't want to. Throw them out. Mm, what papers? <laughs> Mr. Kenworth kept everything. Yeah, he collected bills, receipts, pieces of twine, bits of paper. <laughs> he wasn't that bad. Okay, just like to keep things. <laughs> Including money. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, Mr. Holliday? Where's his money? Well, he didn't leave any. <laughs> That's what the man said. But, but he didn't, did he, Ted? No. Then where is it? Helen, let me explain. You see, Mr. Holliday has a complex... To him, the simple act of taking a drink of water is filled with mystery and dark meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Want to borrow my cloak and dagger? <laughs> well, you two argue about it. I'll be all finished tomorrow, Ted, and you can look over everything. See you later, Mr. Holliday. Oh, good. Nice girl. Uh-huh. What's the matter? Don't you like her? I just met her. What do you want me to do, start sending orchids? Hey, come on, let's take a walk, huh? Uh, I'd rather go over the house. Oh, you're kidding. Why? Oh, just to take a look. Oh, <laughs> Expect to find a million tucked away in an old pillowcase? You never can tell, boy. Come on, just to satisfy my curiosity. Okay, I satisfied my curiosity. 
Ted knew the old place backward and forward. Almost all of the furniture had been cleared out. And if there was a hiding place for anything, we'd have found it. But it still bothered me, and it bothered me after I finally went to bed. Then in the middle of the night, somebody was taking a walk in the house. I got out of bed, opened my door, and went to Ted's room. Ted. Ted, wake up. Huh? Huh? What's the matter? Oh. Oh, Dad. Be quiet. Hmm? What? What's the matter with you? You walking in your sleep? I heard someone upstairs. Oh, large mice. Go back to bed. I tell you, I heard someone walking around. What's directly above my room? Your room? Yeah. Why, this is that old room I played in when I was a kid. What's in there? Oh, cut it out, will you, Dan? What's in that room? Nothing. You saw it. A truck with some old toys in it, that's all. I heard someone walking around up there. Ah, you were dreaming. You've got your head so crammed that's full. That's a car. Huh? Yeah, so what? But you and I are the only ones in the house. That's what I said. But someone just drove away from here. That car was on the road, not on the grounds here. It drove away from here. All right, it drove away from here. Now go back to sleep. The next dream you have, tell Freud, not me. I knew I'd heard someone upstairs. Somebody was going through that old room which Ted had used as a playroom when he was a kid. But why? Ted and I had gone through it with a fine-toothed comb and there was nothing there. But the next morning I wanted a better look, so Ted and I went back. I don't know why I'm doing this except to humor you, Dan. There's nothing in this room. Hey, how old is that horn? I don't know. Maybe 20 years. Oh, get this. <laughs> Uncle Thaddeus never threw away a thing. Not even his money. Oh, still harping on that, huh? Yeah. Hey, uh, what else is in that trunk? Oh, baseball glove, <coughs> dust, ball, bat. <laughs> Gosh, this rabbit's almost as old as I am. Then, let's see, tops, strings, that's all. And there's nothing else in the room? Nope. Yet someone was up here last night looking for something. Oh, Dan, stop it. I... Huh? What's the matter? I... Nothing. Nothing, I guess. Come on, come on, come on. What were you going to say? Wait a minute. Lose something? I don't know. Why don't you know? Seems to me there's something missing from this bunch of junk. Well, what? I can't remember. But there's one thing. I... Toy? Horn, train... No, car. no, no. The, those things are all here. Then what's missing? Come on, Ted, think. Oh, but it's more than 20 years ago. 25 is more like it. Yet you know something's missing. I, I don't know. It's just that something hit me. You know, like, like a name you try to remember, or a place, or a date. All right. What? I don't know, Dan. I can't remember. Good morning. It. Good morning. Oh, hiya, Mr. Wilson. Come on in. Second childhood, Theodore? Playing with toys again? Uh, just rummaging around. Uh, Dan, this is Martin Wilson, uncle's attorney. Mr. Wilson, Dan Holliday. How Glad do you know do. you? Well, Theodore, the papers are all ready for the sale. You can sign them anytime. Oh, good. Be glad to get it off my mind. But I kind of hate to see the old place go. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, staying long, Mr. Holliday? No, just the weekend. Mm-hmm. Were you looking for something, Theodore? Huh? Oh, 
No, not in particular. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're ready, we'll sign the papers. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Wilson, but but could I take a look at the will? Eh? Will? What will? Thaddeus Kenworth. What for? <laughs> Dan's a writer, Mr. Wilson. He's writing now. But could I look at it? That will be up to Theodore. How about it, Ted? And when you've looked at it? I don't know. I don't know. Is this the only will? Of course. It's the only one I've been able to locate. Well, Dan, what'd you find? Just the house and all that's in it. What? I said this clause states you'd receive the house and all that's in it. Is there something curious in that, Mr. Holliday? Maybe. Ah, here's a clause that strikes me as being peculiar. Which one's that? Oh, uh, listen. The happiest days of all of our lives are those spent in innocence. If you would become happy, Theodore, then remember your childhood and those things that were dear to you. Yeah, maybe the old boy was right. Do you read any odd meaning into that, Mr. Holliday? Do you? (laughs) Old Thad was a peculiar man, a very peculiar person. He had streaks and quirks. Yeah, and one of them was getting rid of a fortune in time to keep anyone else from enjoying it. Maybe he thought people should work for their money. What are you getting sore about, Mr. Wilson? I'm not, I'm not. Well, if you're quite finished with this will, Mr. Holliday... Oh, yes, I, I am, thanks. All right. We'd better get the business of signing the papers over with Theodore. Can't make a buyer wait forever, you know. All right. Hi, everyone. Oh, hi, Helen. What is this? Why all the grim looks? Nothing. I'll be finished today, Ted. Then you can look over everything. Oh, thanks. Oh, uh, Ted, want to go for a walk? Hmm? Oh. Oh, sure. Uh, excuse me. Of course. I'll finish my work in here, Helen. Won't disturb you, will I? No, not at all. I'll work in the library. What's the matter, Dan? I I'm just thinking. About what? I'm sure I heard someone in that room last night, Ted. The room you used as a playroom when you were a kid. Now Now what? That sentence in the will about your childhood. Remember it if you want to be happy. Oh, look. Uncle Thad was a little well eccentric. Maybe. But it ties in. The playroom, your childhood, someone looking for something and your feeling something was missing from that old trunk. It... Look out! Huh? Ted, Ted. You all right? Yeah. But if you hadn't given me that push, I don't know. That coping stone would have nailed you. It fell off of the roof. Yeah. Hey, I guess it's about time to get rid of the place. It's falling apart. That stone didn't fall, Ted. It was pushed off. Sheena's Jungle Room, and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Children's Books. As kids grow, the books they read should grow too. That's why we've introduced Acme Brand Chapter Books, where the next installment in the series is a little more difficult than the one before. Watch them begin with books like Lolita and Madame Bovary. Then, as they get older... Watch them excel with books like Tropic of Cancer and Lady Chatterley's Lover. 
Acme Brand Children's Chapter Books. Oh, how they'll learn and grow. Now, we return you to Box 13, here on Dime Store Radio Theater. And now, back to Last Will and Nursery Rhyme, another Box 13 adventure with Alan Land as Dan Holliday. Sure, that stone was pushed. Ted and I went to the roof, saw the marks made when the stone had been shoved forward. And it was meant to put the lights out for him. Why? That's what I want to know. Why? Because there's something in this house someone wants to get and keep you from getting. You know, you're almost making me believe this. You've got to. And you've got to think what's missing from that old trunk. I've tried, Dan. I can't. There was nothing in it but toys. That's all. Yet you say they're all there. Well, I, I think so. Now, wait a minute. Let's go at this logically. There were trains, bats, baseball mitt, mechanical toys, things like that. What are you getting at? Well, this. You wouldn't have missed another of those things, so the thing that's missing must be different from those. Different enough to make you realize it's gone. Yeah. You're beginning to make sense. <sighs> now you try making some. Oh, Dan, I... I can't. Great. Look, uh... Hmm? Would either Helen or Wilson know... Know what? Oh, the thing that's missing? Uh-huh. Oh, maybe. Both Wilson and Helen were in the house when that stone almost put apart in your hair. Yeah? Either one could have shoved it off. It wasn't too big or too heavy. Yeah, but why kill me? Because the key to this whole business is in your head. As soon as you remember what's missing from the trunk, you'll have it. And both Helen and Wilson have keys to this place. And therefore... Either one could have come into the house the night I heard the prowling in the playroom. All right. Where do we start now? We try to find what was taken. But we didn't. Whoever had it had taken it away. And two hours of pounding at Ted didn't help. He just couldn't remember what it was. Okay. I had an idea and told Ted. Hey, do you mean that? Yes. You follow Wilson when he leaves and I'll follow Helen. Oh, I don't know. It... Now, look, it's our only chance. Come right out and accuse either one, and that'll be the end. We've got to do it this way, Ted. Well, all right. Wait. Hmm? Ah, there you are, Theodore. Oh, hello. Holiday, how are you? Just fine, thank you. Good, good. Well, Theodore, it's all settled. You're getting a good price for this place, but you'll have to leave day after tomorrow. What? The terms of the sale. Buyer wants immediate occupancy. Well, put it off. What for? Just put it off. Look here, I sold this place for you, Theodore. Got a fine price. Yeah, but I didn't know I'd have to leave right away. You should have read the terms of the sale. Well, I've got to be going now. Other things to take care of. Other things. How do you like that? I've got to get out. Okay, that gives us less time. Now you follow him. See what he does, where he goes, anything. I'll, I'll do the same with Helen. <laughs> Helen didn't leave until that afternoon. I let her get a start and then drove after her. She didn't stop in the village. Kept going into town about 20 miles farther. I kept a safe distance behind. Then, in, in the town, I stopped her car, got out. And so did I. Well, so far, this was a blind chase. Then she went into a store, and on the window was children's toys and books. Toys and books. Children's. I, uh... I edged up to the window and looked in. Helen was talking with a clerk, and she had something in her hand. 
And from where I stood, it looked like one of those linen-covered kids' books. Then I saw the clerk go to a shelf of books and look them over. Helen followed her. The clerk shook her head. Helen turned to leave, and I ducked to keep out of sight. Helen went to every toy shop in town, but every place she got the same answer, a shake of the head. Okay. So it was Helen who had taken the missing item from the trunk, and it was a kid's book. But why? And what was in that book? It was dark when she finally headed back to the village of Fair Oaks. She didn't know it, but she was going to get company that night. Mr. Holliday. Uh, Dan sounds better. <laughs> What's that to say, Helen? I, uh, I was just in the village, thought I'd drop in and say hello. Well, I'm glad you did, Dan. Sit down, won't you? Oh, thank you. All finished at the house? Yeah. Oh, things were in a mess. Thaddeus Kenworth kept everything under the sun. Yes, including a secret. Secret? What secret? Oh, just any secret. I wonder what he did with his money. Oh, I don't think he had any. I believe he was an old fraud. Why, he lived the last five years of his life on credit. Uh-huh. And there must have been a good reason for everyone extending credit to him. Well, he was an institution around here. Everybody humored him. Well, maybe. Why, maybe? Did you know him? No, but tradesmen wouldn't extend credit for five years without expecting to get their money. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about that. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Hmm? What? How was your trip into town today, Helen? Pleasant? Profitable? You're an odd person, Mr. Holliday. Uh-uh-uh. The name's Dan, remember? All right. You're still an odd person. You didn't find what you were looking for, did you? Was I looking for something? All right, Helen. Let's quit shadow boxing. You went into every toy shop in town to... Was that a crime? Oh, no. No, not at all. But shoving a stone off of a roof might be called one. What does that remark mean? Helen, I want what you took from the playroom at the house. I didn't take anything. Oh, yes, you did. And among Uncle Thaddeus's papers, you must have seen a letter telling Ted to look in that trunk for a clue, some sort of a book. Oh, you're crazy. Uh, but it's fun. Now, hand it over, Helen. I, I told you I didn't take anything. Listen, that stone just missed killing Ted. Well, it... it and anyone I... who wants to kill someone has a strong motive. What's yours? Well, it was just an accident. I leaned on the stone. Oh, it was... sure, sure, sure. But how will it look if we put two and two together? The stone... And the stolen book. I want it, Helen. <laughs> Something funny? All right, you can have it. But it won't do you any more good than it did me. Now, get out of here. Oh, the lady's armed. I'll kill you. Go right ahead. Stop there! Must be a lot of money to make you attempt to murder and threaten another. I want that book, Helen. Now! You stay away from me! Take it easy. Take it easy now. There. I'll take the gun with me. And the book. It was an old book of nursery rhymes. The kind kids look at hour after hour. I, I took it back to Ted and told him what had happened. Helen? But, but why? Why? For what I've been harping on since I've been here. Your uncle's money. And this book is the clue. Yeah, I remember it now. That's what was missing from the trunk. Sure. Look, Ted, Helen went through your uncle's papers and found something. I would have sworn it was Lawyer Wilson. Yeah, that's something Helen was counting on, but I ruled him out. Why? 
Well, when I first saw the will, I noticed it had been drawn up by another firm of attorneys. If you remember, Wilson even admitted he had to hunt for it. Then Helen must have found the letter telling you to look for this book. Yeah, but there's nothing but nursery rhymes. We've been through it a dozen times, and there's not a mark or a piece of paper in it. Yes, I know, but we've got it. Yeah, we've got it. And I've got to get out of here. You've got to figure this out before you leave. Once you're out of here, you'll have as much chance of finding that... Yeah, I know. But... Come on, come on, come on. Now, let's look through it again. See anything? No. Well, keep looking. Wait a minute. What's the matter? Go back. What did you see? I didn't see anything. It was something I didn't see. Oh, Dan, you're crazy. Mm. Look, Ted, look. Each rhyme is numbered. One, two, three, four, then six. Number five is missing. Hey, you're right. Helen took it. No, 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 she didn't. What? Of course she didn't. That's why she was trying to buy another one like it. But she couldn't. It's too old. All right. Number five is missing. What was it? Oh, hey, I can't remember that. Yes, you can. Now, look. Number one, Little Miss Muffet. Yeah. Number two, Simple Simon. Three, Sing a Song of Sixpence. Four, Three Blind Mice. Wait a minute. Wait. Mice. Mice? No, no, no. That one's here. No, no. Not Hickory Dickory Dock. The mouse ran up the clock. It's not there, and I know it was. Your uncle took it out rather than mark it. He took it out to make it tough for you. Yeah, but why that one? I... Ted, in the hall, that, that grandfather's clock. Yeah. I used to watch it for hours when I was a kid. Well, come on. Hey, Dan, you're terrific. Okay, here's the clock, but it stopped. I tried to wind it the other day, but it wouldn't go. Now, listen, the rest of the rhyme. The clock struck one. One. One o'clock. This clock stopped at six. Now, 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 what'll happen when we turn the hands until they get to one? Well, don't just stand there, boy. Do it. Okay. Seven... Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, easy, one. Look, the face came open. Hey, there's a letter. Well, get it out and read it. Yeah, yeah, read it. My dear nephew... Since you've figured this out, I must assume you've learned that money is to be earned, not come by easily. All right, go to the sundial in the garden. Turn the indicator until it points to 12. You'll then be able to lift the face of the dial. It, in the column, you'll find negotiable bonds and securities. You'll... Dan. Dan, I... I, I know. You love me. Mutations has been bringing you Box 13. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Children's Books. From modern day classics to the ones you grew up on, we have all the books that reinforce your deepest beliefs so you can pass them on to your kids. And theirs. And theirs. For generations to come. Indoctrinate your children. With colorful characters everyone claims to love. With Acme Brand Children's Books, 
It's almost like they're not reading. We now return you to the conclusion of Box 13. Did you have a nice time, Mr. Holiday? Great, Susie, great. Do I look rested? Well, not exactly. That's what I thought. Oh, maybe you won't want to go to the party tonight, then. What party? Well, we're all starting from the city hall. Starting from the city hall? Why? Oh, it's a treasure hunt. It'll be loads of fun. Oh, Susie, how do you manage it? Good night. Next week, same time, through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. Box 13 is directed by Richard Sandville, with an original story by Russell Hughes. Original music is composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. The part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker. Production is supervised by Vern Carstensen. This is a Mayfair production from Hollywood. Watch for Alan Ladd in his latest Paramount picture. Dime Store Radio Theater will continue in just a moment after this brief musical interlude. This week, The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, with Redbeard and the Bag of Pearls. entry, the catch Scarlet Queen, Philip Carney, master. Position, 4 degrees 12 minutes south, 171 degrees 35 minutes west. Wind light, sky fair. Remarks, left Hull Island, Phoenix group after involvement in tribal beliefs. Reason for involvement, red beard and the bag of pearls. It was a brilliant sun-washed afternoon that the puff of cumulus on the horizon ahead slowly raised to show beneath it an indistinct smudge. It darkened as we moved toward it, took on a definite palm-tufted outline, and finally materialized as the four-mile length of Hull Island. Its flat silhouette is broken at its western end by a grove of 80-foot palms, and it's set against a backdrop of water and sky and never-ending summer. Gallagher approached me at the wheel as we stood in toward our passage. He was resplendent in a newly grown burning red beard that shone in the sunlight. 
Hey, Barbarossa, uh, if you can make yourself heard through that eight-bell shadow, douse the sails. We'll go in under power. Aye, aye, sir, and your jealousy does not throw me. <laughs> Stand by to take it in parallel sail. All two by my feet. You'll be standing by for nothing. We slipped through the passage into the quiet lagoon water and headed toward the small pier that served the Copra station of Harris Fenrick, the man who was to receive the cargo of supplies we had aboard. The Scarlet Queen had company in the unkempt schooner Ransom from Honolulu that was anchored just off the pier. We dropped our hook next to her, and in the quiet after we were secure, I heard for the first time the muffled throb of drums from the island. Then I noticed that the man who walked down the pier toward us carried a rifle. I'm glad you finally got here, Captain Carney. Are you Fenric? No. He's up in the cottage. I'm Ray Librado, captain of the schooner. What are the drums? The natives are stored up. Better leave your crew aboard, Captain. But we need you ashore. We think they will attack tonight. So Mutual continues The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, written by Gil Dowd and Bob Tallman, and starring Elliot Lewis. The Scarlet Queen, proudest ship to sail the seas, bound for uncharted adventure. Every week, a complete entry in the log, and every week, a league further in The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. of the Scarlet Queen is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Sleep Aid. Tossing and turning, constantly yearning for anything that will bring you beautiful, angelic rest. Now there's a solution with Acme Brand Sleep Aid. The once-a-day tablet for radiant, glorious Magnificent sleep. Acme brand sleep aid. Now in the adult candy aisle. And now, back to the voyage of the Scarlet Queen. This is my mate, Mr. Gallagher, Captain Labrado. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Quite a beard you got, Redhead. Yeah, it's not bad for a start. What's the story, Captain? What's bothering the natives? First, I, uh, I think you better give me your gun. You what? what? kind of a move is that? I think it's better I took over command here. Fenric, he isn't worth anything. I think it's better if I have all the guns so nobody don't do any shooting until I want them to. Well, how do you like that? You got the wrong men, Labrado. We'll sweat this out on the ship on the other side of the reef. Come on, Red. Yeah. Wait a minute. Use your heads. I need you on this island. You stay here. Where else? Here we go, Skipper. Hold it, Red. What's up, Ray? These guys think I'm kidding. Take their guns. What is this? Hold it, Red. Don't try nothing now, either one of you. You're LeBron. Huh? Don't have to be tough. Just so it's my way. Is that rifle? What else? Yeah, sir. Yeah, I guess that does it, Ray. Uh, let's be friends now, huh? This is my mate, Morel. We got a thing to do here. Let's pull together, huh? Yeah, I'm not kicking. I like to be shoved around like this. You make friends fast, you guys. Maybe this don't mean a thing, but I got to know you're all right when I talk to you. Come on. We go up to the cottage. (laughs) 
ignored us as we came in, wore seaman's clothes and a belted automatic. The other, sitting stiffly in a wicker chair, I took for Harris Fenrick, a slight graying man with a purplish bruise covering the left side of his face from temple to chin, and a look for labrado that mixed fear and hate. Sit down. This is Thorpe from my crew, and he's Fenrick. <laughs> he don't talk much. With that face, he doesn't have to. I'll talk when it's the time. Shut up. You go, what's coming to him? I came in here without food stores or fuel for my auxiliary. This guy turned me down when I wanted to buy it from him. These Phoenix Islanders haven't been at war for 50 years. What's got them riled up? <laughs> These. Oh, the pearls? That's right, plenty of them. They'll go $40,000 on skin. I won't fight you for them. Give me a match. Light your own. Burrell. Yeah. Match. Yeah, boy. Now, let's get one thing settled between you and me and uh, Curly Locks with the fire whiskers there. Don't blow that smoke in my face, you dumb... Guys like us don't come down to these islands for the weather. You're carrying cargo for money. I'm pearling for money. We uh, see eye to eye on that now, hmm? Yeah, I think I can figure that one out. I got these pearls just like every other pearl in the business. I anchor over the bed. I got them in the Gilberts on a shelf between Beru and Nicaragua. It's simple enough, huh? I don't care where you got them. What are you driving at? That bed, the Gilbert Tees thing, nobody should dive there. It's sacred. They bury their warriors there for, I don't know, maybe four or five hundred years, maybe more, I don't know. You mean these are Gilbert Tees out here with the drum? They follow you all the way over here? That's right. More of them come every day. They mark at once, these pearls. I should throw them back just because these Kanakas get some crazy ideas? When you break a taboo, you're asking for trouble. You asked for it, now you got it. That's all right. I got the pearls, too. <laughs> I'll fix these boys. They bought me last night when I was there. Take off my native crew, cut my sails, and then my running rigging. Throw the lines in blocks over the side. It's going to don't sail for a long time. I come all the way here two days ago on my engine. And this Fenric won't help me get repaired so I can get out of here. Because I'd ruin everything I built here if I did. My workers are Gilbertese, too. He wanted to force them on the crew. Fenric. You ain't talking, remember? Now, Carney... You got any extra gear and canvas I could buy from you? No. None that I can spare. <laughs> Too bad you say that. I hope you like shooting, Kanaka. I don't. Especially when it's your kind of fight. You'll get plenty of chance. As far as they're concerned, you're fighting on my side, no matter what you do. They saw you come in. They got it all figured out how you came to help me get away. This is your fight, too, now. You'll find out what I mean. It didn't take long to find out. The sun dropped into the west, and soon after half its circle had sunk into the horizon, Labrado's crewman, Burrell, standing at the window... Hey, Labrado! ...called out the warning. They're moving out there. Coming this way. A whole gang of them. All right. Back. We go meet them outside. Bring a rifle, Thorpe. Burrell, you watch Redbeard. Okay. Labrado's automatic pushed Fenrick and me out the door and off the veranda. There must have been a hundred or more trickling tortoise through the neat rows of palms. We're wearing full tribal gear and paint, carrying war clubs and short spears. There wasn't a long-range weapon in the crowd. They stopped at the edge of the grove. The tall, erect native stepped to the front and raised his hand to us. 
headdress was a little higher, his paint a little gaudier. And he was weaponless. What do you say, Fenric? The truth I want. He says that he has seen the spirit home and he comes in peace. You take a liar. What was that? He says the spirit omen will protect him. He will walk into our house with the spirit omen at his side. He will return a victor to his island, Beru, where the spirit omen once lived. He's coming, Leprado! Let him come. Give him five steps more and then show them we mean business. Hey, wait a minute. No. Go ahead, Thorpe. Brother, don't let him shoot. Go ahead, Thorpe. Get that native. You stupid. You lunkheads. You shot that chief. Watch it. Here comes another one. You crazy fool. He's just going to pick up the chief. They're going away. What more do you want? Well, Carney. How do you like the way we fight now? That's great. You and these smoke-crazy hands of yours have got real guts. That was the tough assignment, that native who didn't even have a slingshot. Come on, we go inside and talk. Morel, you and Thor bring Cordy Locks in. We'll bring him. Come on, Connie, move ahead. You too, Fenric, inside. Take that chair there, Carney. Don't bother being nice. I like you better the other way. What's the matter, Carney? We're in this together, huh? Together? Sure. It's going to be tough from now on since uh, we killed that chief. They waste a few Kanakas and use up our ammunition. They wait long enough, they starve us out. Lazy monkeys, they got plenty of time. I think we better get off of this island, don't you? We... Oh, yeah, you mean you and Burrell and Thorpe. We all go together on my ship, huh? Sure. You say you don't have any spare gear or canvas. Anyway, I don't think we got time now to make repairs on my ship. I'll pay our passage to Borneo and you don't lose Why anything. Why don't you stop? I kicked myself from here to Sydney before I get sucked into a deal like that. That's enough, I tied on as a galley slave to that dead chief survivors before I'd help you get out of here on my ship. All right, Connie, you keep begging. What are you, you lay off. I'm going to catch you without that automatic before this is over. All right, Brad. I'd rather be slugged and talked to by this louse. Maybe you get both, Connie. You and your mate, too. I gave you a chance. I'm still trying to make sense with you. Hey, Lebrado. Yeah, what have you got? Getting dark out there. It looks like the grove out in front's crawling with Kanakas. Off you go stand guard at the door. I'll watch these guys. Move over there, Fenric. You too, Connie, over by your mate. It's them, all right. Lebrado, they're coming out of the grove. Then open up, fools, if you got targets, fire. Slow them up. When they get too close, we leave from the back window. If any of them back there, we can shoot our way through. We leave these three here for them. They're too close, LeBron. They won't stop. Keep firing. That's uh, no use. Come on. Let's not wait any longer. When we go out the north rim. They can have these three in payment for their chief. After they'd gone through the window, we just had time to get to our feet before the flood of natives rolled into the cottage. We backed to the wall, but the swarm of brown bodies smothered us like soldier ants covering the carcass of a mouse. I was pulled from the wall and lost Gallagher and Fenric. Then I was looking into a brown vermilion dabbed face. I caught the flash of a polished war club over my head and saw the lips in front of me pull away from a set of blackened teeth. And then I seemed to explode upward for me to the sending club. Fire! 
Voyage of the Scarlet Queen is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Sleep Aid. You could be counting sheep, worrying about your taxes, trying to read that book you also just gave to your kid, or any number of other horrors that consume you when you wake up in the middle of the night. Or you could be taking Acme Brand Sleep Aid, the only medication that tells you to forget all of that and sleep straight through the night. Acme Brand Sleep Aid. Tastes as good as it sounds. And now, back to The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. The first thing that came back to me was the difference in sound. It was raining. I got my eyes open. The room swam into focus. I stumbled to my feet. One chair had been knocked over. Beyond it on the floor lay Harris Fenrick. When I looked around, I couldn't find Red. He was gone. Red? Red! Red! What? Fenrick? Fenrick, wait a minute. I'll get some water. All right. Come on, Fenrick. Come on, Connie. You're all right. Come on, Fenrick. Get yourself together. My head can't... Yeah, I know it's bad. I'm doing the best I can. Fenrick, listen. Gallagher is gone. Gallagher? The natives took him. They took him? Do you understand me? Yes, Captain. Are you sure they took him? What else? They caught us here. Now he's gone. I couldn't have been Labrado or the others. You mean they took him to pay for their chief? That is their custom, Captain Carney. The spirit of one of the enemy who dies while looking at the dead chief will be the slave of the Gilbertese spirit in their hereafter. Never mind all that. How much time have I got? A few hours, perhaps. Where Captain. are they? Captain, I know the hopelessness of anything you would attempt. You yourself would be killed. I'm afraid I must refuse to answer any more of your questions. Where are they? I'm sorry, Captain. But you sent me to my death. But I'll make them understand that he's the wrong man. You couldn't. Any man from the enemy village. We're all enemies since Labrador was among us. Come on, Fenric, before I shake it out of you. Where would they take us? I'm sorry, I'm Captain. Where are you, Connie? Use your head. Labrador. After all this, you come back to do more. Sure. Sure I come back. Why not? With the same forty-five, in case Carney gets too brave. Have it ready, Labrador. When you need it, you're going to need it in a hurry. It is ready. Why don't you wake up, Carney? If mate is gone with the Kanakas, what can you do? Use your head. Go with me to your ship now so we can get off this island. Drop it. I pay your passage in advance. You're just making me sick. Drop it. Get sore. Pull the trigger. Do something, but quit trying to sell me that deal. All right. You stay on the island, then. With you, it would be easy. You think we can't leave on your ship without you? We handled crews like that before. We'll make it all right. You might have that for a few days. A good try, Connie. I promise you that. Now that you give me your ship, I tell you where they can take your mate. Labrador, why don't you just shoot him? You know what you're doing to him by telling him. Sure, I know. <laughs> I fix it so the captain can bend over three sharp bamboo stakes. Two for the belly and one for the heart. While a big Kanaka, he pushes him down from behind. Labrador. Go through the grove, Carney. Shout there you'll find a scrub forest. After you go through 300 yards, you look low underneath. Maybe see their fire. Maybe you get there in time to see how the three stakes look in your mate. You're happy now? Yeah, and I don't want to spoil it by forgetting you got that gun. Get out of here, Labrador. 
I can't stay away from you. Get out of here, Labrado. Sure, Carney. It don't make me sad to get out of here. Captain Carney. It's all right, Fenwick. But your ship. Why not go with him and try to save at least that? He's ruined what I've built. And now for a hopeless search, you let him put an end to what you have. That's enough, Fenwick. Maybe you're right. Maybe I should have gone. I couldn't. Not yet. I followed the beach. I walked the 200 yards. Then started dropping to the ground every 10 feet or so to look under the heavy foliage for a flicker of flame. I covered half of the next 100. I squatted low for a few minutes, my soaked clothes sticking coolly to my body. The movement of a figure on the beach ahead caught my eye. All my attention focused on it. Not for long, but long enough to dull me to the movement behind me. It was a short rush. I half turned to meet one of them. The other one stayed behind me and a loop settled around my throat. And I... I struggled until I was blinded by the flashes in my eyes. The noose relaxed as soon as I stopped. A hand in my back pushed me in the direction the native behind me wanted me to go. I stumbled ahead along an unseen passage through the scrub. I entered the uneven circle of light spreading from a number of fires fighting against the rain. I looked up at a wall of stony, silent faces. And my natives pulled me to a halt. I made myself look at the ground. Forced my eyes to stay on a triangle of stiletto-sharp stakes that gleam wetly in the firelight. Yeah, my eyes are left! My guard took my shoulder. The noose slipped off, then he turned me away from the stake. Pushed me forward toward the wall of natives. An aisle split the crowd. I was guided through it. I made the first six feet on the other side, then I stopped. Fire on this side was bigger. Flames leaping cheerfully, higher than my head, forming a curtain that I could see vaguely through. Only vaguely, and I still didn't believe what I thought I saw. Yeah! I moved around the fire. And I had to believe it because I heard it. Alden, no! This is not the killer of the chief! Why not? Gallagher! Not impaled on stakes, but seated on a chair of sorts, his bright red beard glowing in the firelight, and a shelter of palm leaves protecting him from the rain the rest of us stood in. He looked at me coolly, then gestured idly with two fingers on his right hand. Have the white man sent to me. Tell them I speak to the white man. Then we find the killer of their chief. Don't let I you know me. I'm a big gun around here. And if I like you, I might save your life. I was stumbling around here figuring maybe I'd save yours. What the devil's going on? My beard and my collar is fine. Yeah. They saw me come ashore. And then they dragged me out of that cottage and made a big shot out of me before I could congratulate myself. <laughs> they got a legend that a guy with a beard and hair like I'm sporting floated into Beirut Island in the Gilberts three or four hundred years ago. And he turned into quite a leading light. They think I'm him. Come back to save their pearls. Think you'll make it? I hope so. Because if I don't... <laughs> That's why I had them out there waiting for you. I knew you'd get on the trail sometime. Ren, Labrado and his hands were on their way to take over the queen when I left. The queen? What's the matter with you, Skipper? How'd you let him get away with that? They had all the artillery. I didn't even have you. Oh, yeah. I don't think they'll risk the reef with this rain-cutting visibility. But we better take a stab at it quick. Catch them while they're at anchor. Yeah. Can you get some helpers? <laughs> Can I? All I gotta do is wag this beard. 
How many do you want? Fifty, a hundred, or the whole blasted pack? Twenty of the best swimmers. <laughs> That's great, but being what I am, I'll have to outswim them. Or admit that I'm human. <laughs> Watch my beard, Skip. I'll show you how it's done. Stand by! Tell them this. I demand twenty swimmers. They must be strong and silent and filled with fire. When they are ready, we will go and get the pearls, the one who took them from the burial bed, and the two killers of their chief, Matangi. Hey, you're all right, Red. You got that immortal attack. This is the life for you. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. But that other Joe, he married eight wives. You, you should see what I've been through dodging that, that honor. Well, you tell him you've got a scarlet queen that just sets off your beard. That's woman enough for you. Believe me, Skipper, I'll be glad to get her back. An hour later, Gallagher and I had led our 20 natives to the edge of the lagoon, a safe distance away from the pier, and stripped down the dungarees. We slipped into the water. Stroked silently with our arms submerged, with only our heads breaking the surface. We reached the Queen, rested on the port side. We found both Thorpe and Burrell standing watch on deck. According to plan, I submerged, swam under the keel. Came up on the starboard side, waited there for the disturbance that was to take them to port so I could board. I didn't hear the sound, but I saw Thorpe's head lift and swing toward it. I was halfway over the rail by the time they started to move. And I was behind them as they reached the rail. I dropped to the deck and lifted their feet first. Thor, and then Burrell. They were fished out by waiting brown arms that quieted their struggling and started towing them to shore. Gallagher came aboard. We didn't wait for LeBron. We went after him. He was sitting on the edge of my bunk, idly picking an untrimmed thumbnail. When he saw us, his mouth dropped open. He lunged to his feet and his hand streaked toward the automatic in his waist. Hey, what the devil? Without the gun this time, LeBron. Oh, I take his gun right off, take him. Hey, what do you think you're doing, Carl? I don't know what to do without that automatic in your fist. Do you, look? You don't like it when you're unarmed like that native chief. Oh, Ernie! I don't think you know what else to do with a guy who had enough guts to walk up to you and your two rifles. You don't understand guts, do you? Scares you to death when you see them in somebody else. Oh, that's enough. I'm quite it. All right, now get him! All right, I got him. What's this? He fell out of his shirt. That's the pearls, Randy. You bring them. We'll give both the pearls and Labrado to our friends. Shut up, Labrado. Please, please, Tommy, don't. Don't let him get me. All right, Gallagher. Be the big chief. Hand the pearls over to your loyal subjects. Right, Skipper? Hey, you! shot a spotlight that shone on a triangle of palms ashore. They gleamed wetly in the silver light, and they reminded me of the triangle of glistening stiletto-sharp stakes that were now waiting for Labrado. I went in to clean myself up before I hit the sack. Sheena's Jungle Room and Midnight Mutations has been bringing you 
The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Sleep Aid. Considering these strange and difficult modern times, the right dose of Acme Brand Sleep Aid could vary widely from person to person in your household. That's why we now offer Acme Brand Sleep Aid in the bulk food aisle, where you can grab as much as you need to keep your family flush with supply. With a little experimentation, you'll find that there's a dosage of Acme Brand Sleep Aid that's perfect for you and yours, at a price you can afford. And now, get ready for the conclusion of The Voyage of the Scarlet Queen. By 1.30 the next day, we discharged Fenric's cargo and left Hull Island basking in the sun peacefully once more, richer for the unkempt schooner Ransom from Honolulu. With the white curl of surf on coral dropping astern, I cut the motor. And Red roared the crew into action. Inside, to make sail! It was a meek equatorial breeze that flowed in on our starboard quarter. But the crewmen jumped to their stations as though it was the wind they'd waited for all their lives. It was a holiday wind that we'd ride to Christmas. No snow or holly wreaths, no sleigh bells or shopping lists. But we'd be one up on the world. We'd celebrate the holiday on Christmas Island. The mainsail blossomed into the air. The jib. Then the mizzen swung across my head and its expanse went to work. The Scarlet Queen, unimpressed by the meager wind she was getting, settled lazily on her course and nestled into the long blue-green swells that stretched endlessly ahead. Hey, Skipper, I got something to show you. How are you, almighty bearded one, pride of the Gilbert Islands? <laughs> yeah, you, you think it's a gag, huh? Yeah, yeah, look at here, look. The Pacific Islands Handbook. Page one, two, go, go ahead, go ahead, read, read. Right. Look, look at that. The Spanish explorer <laughs> Mendana was in these waters in 1567, yeah. and it's believed that he may have sighted the Gilbert group. <laughs> That's my outfit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, strong native tradition has it that between 1550 and 1600, a man with white skin, red hair, and red beard came ashore at the island of Beirut, Gilbert, in a boat like a box in a famished condition. Yeah. He recovered, took as wives the eight sisters of a local chief, and had 23 children whose descendants are now scattered throughout 14 of the 16 Gilbert Islands. He may have come from Mendania's ship. <laughs> How do you like that? It's right there for anybody to read. Oh, Red, it's a great beard, but with yeah. the name Gallagher, it somehow doesn't point back to a Spanish explorer. Yeah, yeah well, well, funnier things have happened, and besides, it worked, didn't it? We got out of there. With your loyal subject pushing eight wives at you, you had to get out. <laughs> How'd you defend yourself, Red? Just like you said. I told him I had a scarlet queen to just set off my beard. <laughs> Here, Skipper. To the queen? Yeah, after what she got you out of, to the queen. <laughs> after you, mate. After you. Log entry. The Catch Scarlet Queen. 5.30 p.m. Wind light. Sky fair with cumulus on eastern horizon. Sea calm with low swell. Ship secure for night. Signed, Philip Carney. Master.
Courage of the Scarlet Queen has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. behind-the-scenes show, where we uh, give you a little bit of detail about what's uh, what's cool in the world of radio. And, uh, you know, we're actually uh, um, continuing uh, part four of our ongoing story, The History of Radio, The First 50 Years, as assembled by Ben Brooks, a Westinghouse production featuring... Lots of samples of what it was like to listen to old radio with some commentators uh, who have a decidedly Americanized perspective on the subject. I'm going to be looking for some more um, uh, uh, inclusive uh, stories of the history of radio that I can possibly run in this spot. I know there's a really good CBC documentary that was done by the Canadian Broadcasting Company uh, called uh, The Wire. Which um, uh, actually uh, is is more uh, is the story of electricity than it is the story of radio, but uh, certainly the first couple of episodes are a lot about radio broadcasting and uh, early recording technology, which are kind of all connected and combined together in one another to uh, to create uh, many of the of uh, the favorite mediums uh, uh, the, and media that we uh, know and love. So I'm thinking about uh, dipping into that one, which is just a generally interesting documentary in on, on the whole. Uh, it's it's eight hours long, I think. Uh, so uh, that would uh, we could run that in this spot for a long time. But uh, if there is a particular aspect to the history of radio or broadcasting or old-time radio, if there, maybe there's an old-time radio actor that you would like a, a little bit of a biography about, I will do my best to try to bring something to the spot for uh, the show. I, I think that is a good use of this uh, space. Now, I certainly want to thank everybody who's been hanging out in the chat for the last hour or so, uh, we got uh, John R., uh, Ellen Lovebug, who I know had to dip out, uh, but is a, a big fan of Box 13 and is usually there for the the Box 13 shenanigans. Charles, of course. W.R., uh, thank you for your commercial compliment. Uh, listener Robert, always a pleasure to have these folks hanging out and keeping me entertained as I drop little... Uh, tidbits and thoughts and observations about the show. Oh yeah, uh, uh, Solomon uh, uh, decided to uh, tune in to uh, uh, notice uh, the poor quality of the uh, uh, treatment of uh, non-white uh, characters in the uh, Voyage of the Scarlet Queen, and I am with you on that one, Solomon. Uh, and then of course Scott67, who's always hanging out in the chat. Uh, thanks, Scott. We do enjoy your ribald sense of humor. 
Now, uh, yeah, this is uh, the um, summer uh, uh, slog, as they say, where, uh, you know, um, things kind of get uh, weird as the days are long and, and hot. This has certainly been a super hot day here in the Lava Lamp Lounge. I, I haven't even needed to turn the lava lamps on. They just are melting on their own. Which is probably uh, for the best is to keep that wax a little bit, uh, uh, you know, soft and, and, and ready to ready to flow. Yeah, uh, Shandu the Magician coming up next. We're going to have like a little bit of a moment where the date of the Shandu broadcast that we're airing is almost going to line up with the date that we will be airing the show uh, only uh, many, many decades later. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that's, that'll be a fun thing. I'll, I'll make sure to try to draw, draw attention to that when it happens in a couple episodes. And then uh, stay tuned today for... Dimension X, Dr. Grimshaw's Sanatorium. Actually, one of the creepier episodes of Dimension X. I, I have mentioned before the uh, Twilight Zone kind of lineage that this show seems to uh, enjoy, where they, they go for the kind of like sci-fi story with a horror twist. Um, and this is certainly one where they're trying to milk that for all it's worth. So please stay tuned for all of those. And then afterwards, of course, you want to uh, keep listening to uh, Sheena's Jungle Room. Because uh, we have Cheek and Tongues with Barno and DJ Kratoven. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good show. I, I, I like to be the setup for that show because uh, sometimes uh, with those Dime Store or the Dimension X stories, they're a little, little creepy. So you need a little palate cleanser. Anyway, we'll see you next time. This has been Austin. Be seeing you. As the months went by, radio stations and programs and staffs became a little more elaborate and began to cost their owners a bundle, you might say. But who would pay for it? Would it be the government, the states, or perhaps the listeners through some sort of attacks on receivers? The History of Radio. The First 50 Years. By Ben Brooks. Part 4. The man in charge of radio broadcasting was the Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover. It is inconceivable, he intoned, that this great medium of culture and enlightenment and education should ever be used for the hawking of merchandise. Yes, that's what he said. Well, soon, a new station was founded, and businesses were invited to buy time to inform the public about their services. This was WEAF, and its owner was none other than AT&T. The first commercial advertised an apartment house, and it sounded something like this. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Visit our new apartment homes in Hawthorne Court, Jackson Heights, where you may enjoy community life in a friendly environment. Well, now the age of sponsors was upon us. For a little while, stations were uncertain about their advertising. And on one occasion, I can recall that actually time was paid for in cash under the table. You know, just like two bootleggers. And then they began to solicit sponsors right and left. But it was all very dignified, of course. No prices, no hard sell. Great war, an armed conflict which calls forth every resource, every effort on the part of the whole population. 
war was won by Republicans as well as by Democrats. The war was brought to a successful conclusion by a glorious common effort, one which in the years to come will be a national pride. Franklin Roosevelt made that speech in Hyde Park in 1920. In 10 years, he would master radio like no one before or since. Franklin Roosevelt made that speech in Hyde Park in 1920. In 10 years, he would master radio like no one before or since. But the first chief executive to have a radio at his command was Harding. And his rhetoric and pear-shaped tones went over very well with the listeners. And so did just about everything else in that balmy prohibition era. In June of 1923, he made a speech in St. Louis that was heard in Washington and New York at the same time. Just imagine that. America's present need is not heroic, but healing. Not masters, but normal things. Not revolution, but restoration. Not agitation, but adjustment. Not surgery, but serenity. Not the dramatic, but the dispassionate. In November 23, Woodrow Wilson spoke to a radio audience. He reminded the nation of Armistice Day. He was a dying man at that time, but four stations carried his voice. Nineteen twenty-four was an election year, and no one who heard that Democratic convention broadcast from Madison Square Garden in New York will ever forget it. The convention was deeply divided over prohibition, religion, regionalism, and a hundred other issues, and it went on and on and on. There was fighting, music, screaming, prayers, and oratory. Loudspeakers carried the sounds to the streets, and radio shops carried it to every neighborhood in New York City. You know, only two men did the announcing. Think of it. Phillips Carlin and Graham McNamee. After 103 ballots, I think every man, woman, and child in America had heard this phrase. Alabama is winning for votes for Oscar W. Underwood. But it was all for naught because silent Calvin Coolidge got in anyway. And he was a big success on the radio, don't forget that. Because his flat voice didn't tax the carbon microphones, and his position was hard to beat. I believe in the American Constitution. I favor the American system of individual enterprise, and I am opposed to any general extension of government ownership and control. I believe not only in advocating economy and public expenditure, but in its practical application and actual accomplishment. I am opposed to... One of the things that I look back on with uh, great satisfaction, because I played some part in it, was the uh, bringing of the Coolidge inaugural to Los Angeles. This is Carl Haviland, who was the commercial manager of KFI, in Los Angeles. We went to the Board of Education, asked the Board of Education to allow us to put through the offices of the Radio Trades Association 
the dealers and distributors and broadcast equipment into every school in the Los Angeles School District and explain the importance of an inaugural address. That was one of the most dramatic things that ever happened in our area. Uh, radio had been a toy, quote, unquote, underlined capital letters. Nobody paid too much attention to it. It was an amusing thing. But when the solemn ceremonies came over those lines into those classrooms after the teachers had explained its importance, radio came of age in our area. And I'm sure it happened elsewhere in the country because we were not the only station that took this. I'd like you to hear from a young man who made quite a name for himself in radio later on. He recalls the early days vividly. His name, Red Bob. One of the uh, strongest, earliest memories I ever have is as a boy in Central Florida, uh, listening to the radio in the living room of uh, a classmate of mine, and this would be 1924, at one of the stations that he would bring in uh, through the hips of dining and the squealing and the twisting and turning of uh, dials and knobs, etc. It wasn't an easy thing uh, to uh, listen to radio in those days. And uh, I remember that uh, you didn't have much foot room because you had so many batteries around on the floor. All radio was run off batteries in those days, and you had recharges for batteries, and you had red lights uh, uh, on the recharge. And it, it was uh, it was almost like a, setting up a laboratory the way Merrill Roberts had it. But we used to bring in KDKA, and uh, then you'd bring in uh, WSB in Atlanta. And uh, my gracious, what a triumph it would be if we could uh, hear Kansas City or hear a station in Chicago. Uh, I think that uh, the young people today who just pick up a transistor radio and, and uh, your only problem is which one of a number of local stations to tune into have no idea of the excitement that hit this country uh, when radio uh, was young. The History of Radio, the first 50 years, will return next week on Dime Store Revelations. Tune in and follow the story. third installment of the evening, we present Shandu the Magician with Bob Rescued. Shandu the Magician. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We present for your enjoyment tonight... Chandu, the Magician. Chandu, the Magician is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room, a name you can trust in quality and entertainment, and by Mid-Valley Mutations, radio just like Grandma used to make. Now, let's return to Chandu, the Magician. In the hidden room in the pyramid, Frank Chandler, known in the Far East as Chandu the Magician, has come face to face with the sinister Roxor at last. But before Roxor arrives, Princess Naji joins Chandler. At his insistence, she agrees to hide in the shadows so Roxor will not see her. Chandler has almost led Roxor to the point of disclosing where Robert Regent is when Roxor discovers Naji's presence. Realizing he has been tricked, he snatches up a glass tube filled with a deadly gas, smashes it on the floor, and is gone. 
Meanwhile, the present scene opens in Roxor's rooms in Cairo. Chandu, the magician. Oda! Oda! Roxor will return to Cairo tomorrow. Let us have a little joy tonight. Tonight we laugh, and plans to capture the world are forgotten. What has thou done to him? What is behind the curtain? Eat yourselves and await entertainment from the Arabian night. And watch. I draw the curtain. Entertainment, Selim. Not even the Sultan can have more enjoyment than we. Cafe that you must have music and dancing? Is this the way you behave yourselves when I'm not here? Must you be watched like children? Tell him what do you mean by this. It was an hour of entertainment, nothing more. Go outside and wait, brothers. I Fools, weaklings. Take the girl and the musician, see they do not return. Pleasure. I have no enjoyment, as you call it. There is no time for anything but the work. The great rock soars above these simple things. You need them not. We are but past the hours until you should return. Very well. For this one time, I shall say no more of it. Hasalhi. Selim, in this great moment, I cannot be too angry. Even with fools. <laughs> I, Roxor, am all-powerful. You have always had great power, Athena. Has more come to you? You shall hear. Chandler, the great Chandler, he's dead. Dead? Is it so? Dead by my own hand. And not alone Chandler. The princess Nadji as well. Ah. I have killed them both. Great is Allah. But the secrets, Roxor. How will you learn the secrets now? I do not need his secrets. We had not meant to kill him until I had learned more. But when Nadji... Uh -huh. I saw Nadji there. I knew she had lied to me. No one lies to Roxor twice. 
I do not question your wisdom, then. But the secret of Robert Reed... Do not concern yourself, Senor. I will get it from him. Yes, Master. Is it permitted to ask how Chandu died? Tonight, I am in a mood to answer your question. But I have been asking questions of myself. How did Chandler know of that room? And I have the answer. I... The boy who found his way to that room this afternoon was Regent's son. He must have told Chandler so that when I returned, he was waiting for me. Roxor, again I say, I do not question your wisdom. But if the boy saw you... He saw me working on my great experiment, and he called me by my name. Allah! It is only by Chandu's magic he could have known. I tell you that magic was nothing but tricks. Your father, I left the boy there. I thought he would starve to death before he found the way out. By the beard of the prophet Roxor, thou art as great as Saladin. I could have made use of Chandler and his trickery. I went so far as to offer him a place with me. Then such an honor does not come to every man. What man would not seize a chance for power? What man could dare to stand against you, master? Almost I had told him where Regent is. But it is over now. <laughs> When the regent's wife goes to find why her brother has not returned from the pyramid, in one breath, she will lie dead beside him. You have spoken, master. <laughs> and many years from now, some Ferengi will find a way to that place of burial. He will die and men will say it was an ancient curse. <laughs> <laughs> I chose well when I chose you for my work, said you. That is very amusing. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> you are, Cindy. Now these people, too, will search for her. By Allah, the world will be yours indeed. To hold in my hand like an apple. But I have wasted time enough. You have a report for me, Selim? I... Or did the dancing girl drive it out of your head? No, master, no. I have word of Abdallah the Bedouin. So? I have been told he loves Regent's beautiful daughter. What is this? The son of a desert chief? The man who is to bring his people to my feet? I tell you only what is told to me, master. A Bedouin, a fighting man as merciless as I myself. Must be a lie. Abdallah swept away by the emotion of fools. I will not be... Who is that? Who comes? One who waits. Enter. Ah. Who is it you have brought? So he is here. By all means, bring him in. Take your hands off me, you big lug. Tell him he is the son of Robert Regent. Oh. Let him go, Hassan. Wait outside. Where were you, Oh, so it's you again. By golly, ever since we saw you in the crystal ball, oh, you... Oh, you saw me in a crystal ball. The sorcery of Chandu, I suppose. It sure was. We heard everything you said to the princess. And what was that? Look, what is this? I was just out in the hotel garden minding my own business and those two guys grabbed me. What do you want? Perhaps it is something you can tell me. Or perhaps... I can't tell you anything. And I wouldn't if I could. No? No. So tell your little private Gestapo to let me out of here. When I have finished with you, you may go. But that will be when you have learned. Learned what? As if I cared. You shall see what it means to oppose rocks or Selim. Hey. Sure. Tell me a lot of things so I can go home and tell my uncle. Ah... Yes. Your uncle, Chandler. Chandu, the magician. You bet. You'll never beat him. He's too smart for you. 
sit down, my young friend. No, thanks. As you do. When I have finished with you, you will be taken to the street and released. But your uncle you will not see again. No, no. Hey, what do you mean? I mean, you impertinent young puppy. Your uncle is dead. Oh, he is not. You're just saying that to make me talk. Oh, you think so. You're trying to find out a lot of stuff about him. Well, I won't tell you anything. I don't believe you. Do you know where he went with the princess, Nachi? Oh, I know where he went, but the princess wasn't with him. To the pyramid? Okay. You knew that anyway if you went back to get your things. And Nachi was not with him. No, she was... Say, is that where she went? You are beginning to believe me. Perhaps you heard the plan that Nachi was to hide and this. She was not. My uncle wouldn't let her go with him. Still, I tell you, we are both there now, lying on the cold stone near the sarcophagus. Dead. You, you mean you killed them? Oh, I don't believe it. You shall believe me. Listen, you young fool. You saw the chemicals in that room. Why, sure we saw them. In one tube was the new gas I have perfected. To kill a thousand people in one breath. And I opened the tube in Chandler's face. So? You are ready to believe. Why, you're not even human. You... What is that sound? Selim, what is it? I... Oh, I know what it is. You'll see. Tell me at once. Tell me. Let him go, Roxor. Let him go. Ah, Chandler's voice. The voice of the dead. Roxor, I tell you. Let him go. Okay, Roxor, you heard him. Tell that guy outside to get out of the way. No. Not for a thousand Chandlers, dead or alive. He shall not leave this room until I have broken him. Oh, no. Well, look behind you. Turn around and look. Oh, gosh, Uncle Frank, I hope it's really you. Why not? Come on, Bob. Let's get out of here. Adventure awaits those who follow Shondu the Magician. installment in his wild and exciting adventures. Tune in here on Sheena's Jungle Room. Shondu the Magician is brought to you by Mid-Mallee Mutations. Radio the way Grandma used to make. Chandu continues, and you will want to join Dorothy Regent, Betty, and Bob in their thrills and adventures. So you'll be with us again Monday evening at this same time, won't you? Chandu the Magician is presented for your enjoyment every weekday evening. Special musical effects are by Carla Pandit. Your announcer is Howard Culver. Chandu, the magician. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. Theater presents Dimension X with Dr. Grimshaw's Sanatorium. Adventures in Time and Space.
told in future tense. transcribed in the next half hour represents either a magnificent hoax or the true explanation of the famous Grimshaw Sanatorium scandal which made the headlines back in 1947. The manuscript upon which this account is based was removed by the New York State Police from a fountain pen cover found in the doorway to Dr. Grimshaw's study. We offer this manuscript as evidence only. Whether it is authentic or not, you must judge for yourself. Dimension X is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Home Therapy Kits. Finding the help you need can be hard, and matching you with the kind of person that listens to your needs can be challenging. Instead, why not try Acme Brand Home Therapy Kits, where you can binge-watch a semi-pro who will give you pseudo-answers instead. In our 5 to 10 minute videos that condense your average therapy session into bite-sized chunks, Acme brand home therapy kits are the perfect solution for the modern lifestyle. There's the right way and the Acme way. And now, back to Dimension X. College, class of 34, member of Theta Alpha. I'm one of those fools who wanted some excitement in life. So instead of going into my father's shoe business, I became a private detective. These are facts. You can check them if you like. The rest of what I write here is so fantastic that I don't expect it to be believed. If anyone should find this manuscript and read it... All I ask is that you notify Miss Millicent Armbruster of 299 Wallace Avenue, Buffalo, that Johnny Doherty is dead. On the evening of July 1st, Miss Armbruster and I were driving to a wedding. Not our own, though I wish it had been. It was Sunday, and in order to avoid traffic, I took the old mill road, single-lane dirt affair that runs past the Gowanda Cemetery. Johnny, aren't you going too fast? Uh, not for this road. There isn't a thing around except some tombstones. Johnny, there's a gate to the cemetery. What about? That hearse. I don't see any... Hey, Johnny, look out. Look out. It was a big black hearse with no lights on pulling out of the cemetery. Lucky I had good brakes. We skidded for about 20 feet and slammed into the back of the hearse. Two rear doors buckled and snapped open. It was a freak. A huge oak coffin with brass handles tipped up and began slowly to slide back toward us. Oh, Johnny, look. The coffin is sliding out. Holy Oh, how horrible. You, you stay right here, honey. I, I'll help the driver with that thing. Hey, you okayed in the speed limits, do you, Jack? Now, look, let's not get hung up on who was right and who was wrong. I was going too fast, and you were traveling without lights after dark. Main thing is, nobody's hurt and no damage done, except for that coffin. And I don't suppose the occupant minds too much. Let's see the driver's license and registration. 
Right here. Hmm. John Doherty. Oh, a private eye, huh? You listen to the radio too much, Junior. Now, if you don't mind, who does this joy wagon belong to? Rwanda Funeral Service. It's being rented to Grimshaw. Who? Grimshaw from the private sanatorium. Do you mind if I ask what you were doing after dark coming out of a cemetery with a wooden kimono? We're moving one of Grimshaw's patients to a new grave. Uh Uh-huh. They always travel like this? Now, look, Hawkshaw, how about skipping the third degree and giving me a hand getting the box back in the wagon, huh? Good pleasure. Better screw on the cover again. It's going to slide off. Let's get it in the hearse first. Okay, Junior. You get on that end. Ready? Just just slide it, brother. Who's in there, King Kong? Look out for the cover. Hey. Uh, I told you that it happened. Hey, uh, uh, what's the guy's name, Junior? Why don't you ask him? Real wise guy, huh? I've got half a mind to report this accident. Yeah, go ahead. See what gets you. Grimshaw's got a lot of influence around here, mister. A lot of influence. Now, if you'll pardon me, I'll deliver the body. Junior. Johnny? Johnny? I'm coming, honey. Everything all right, Johnny? I thought so until a few seconds ago. Uh, Listen, baby, can you sit here in the car for another five minutes? We're due at the wedding in half an hour. I won't be long. Where are you going? For a stroll through the cemetery. Oh, hey, Johnny, stop making jokes. Honey... When we lifted that coffin back on a meat wagon, I got a good look inside of it. Oh. Exactly how I felt. I figured we'd knock the stuffing out of the corpse. Only I didn't expect the stuffing to be sand. What? Yes. It wasn't a body. It was a dummy stuffed with sand. A dummy with a wax face. Johnny! Which brings up an interesting question. Who's supposed to be in that box? And, uh, just where is the dead man spending his time? Sometimes in my business, when things drop off, you have to go out and uh, dig up new clients. My next case was a gentleman named Harlan Ward, Sr., the wealthy automobile manufacturer. I'd gotten his name off his son's tombstone. Are you trying to tell me, Dorothy, that my son Harlan was never buried at Kuanda Cemetery? Exactly, Mr. Ward. Why? Maybe if you'll tell me the circumstances surrounding your son's death, I can help answer that. My son was a rather impetuous young man. Tall, good-looking. After his graduation from Princeton, he began drinking quite heavily. After he got into a couple of scrapes, we sent him to Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium in the hope that he could be cured. While my wife and I were in Europe, we received word that he had died. He was buried at Gowanda in our absence. Last week, my wife and I decided to have his body removed to the family vault here at Short Hills. How did your son die, Mr. Ward? Suicide. He slashed his wrists at the sanatorium. You never saw the body? No. We couldn't get back from Europe in time. I see. See here. How do I know this whole thing isn't a plan to fleece me? How do I know that you didn't remove the body yourself? You don't. But you're a rich man, Mr. Ward. 
And you're perfectly willing to take a chance that I'm on the level and that your son may still be alive. You sound very sure of yourself, Mr. Dorothy. My fee is $2,000 retainer plus expenses. What sort of expenses? However much it costs to take the cure at Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium. What do you say, Mr. Warren? All right, Dorothy. My secretary will send you a check in the morning. Good. Oh, uh, one other thing. What's that? I want a photograph of your son, a good one. I think that can be arranged. Look here, Dorothy. If I cooperate, how do I know that you won't run off? I won't guarantee it. On the other hand, I might have to get myself killed on this job. We both take a risk, Mr. Ward. Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium was just outside Gowanda, and it was strictly for the 400 at $60 a day. Most of the cases were nervous breakdowns and alcoholics. I committed myself as a dipso, and just to make it convincing, I stopped at five or six bars on the way over. I was interviewed by Grimshaw himself, a small man with a fringe of white hair. He seemed on the level. And yet, there was something just the slightest bit phony about the whole deal. You, uh, understand, Mr. Doherty... Uh, that's not my real name, of course. Social reasons. Mm, we understand. Our paid clientele is very select. Our rates are rather high. You'll be paid in cash and in advance, Dr. Grimshaw. You'll find us most sympathetic. Um, how long does a cure usually take, Doctor? Well, that, of course, depends on the degree of alcoholism. This is my assistant, Dr. Voynow. How do you do? How do you do? We are accepting Mr. Doherty as a patient. Better place him in the ward with Mr. K and Mr. Crakey. Mr. K is a long-term patient, Mr. Doherty. Highly intelligent man, formerly a professor of plant pathology. Mr. Crakey suffers mild delusions. I think you'll find him rather amusing. After about three days, my roommates, Arthur Kay and Craigie, got used to me, and we even began to play three-handed bridge. Kay was a chronic dope addict, an intelligent, sensitive man. Craigie was nothing but a clown. He kept a big black cat named the Professor, which he talked to as if it were human. And so I said to her, my dear Countess, if you don't like the company of my cat, then you don't like me. She looked at me as if I were insane, but of course the joke wasn't her because I was. <laughs> hey, Professor? You'll have to forgive Count Crakey, Mr. Doherty. When you've been here as long as I have, you'll get used to him. Do you like cats, Mr. Doherty? I do hope you like cats since we are to have adjoining rooms. The Professor is very sociable and excellent company. Except when he kills birds and deposits them in your bed. He's nothing but a feline murderer as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Ah, see, you have insulted him. <laughs> Come here, Professor. Let's make friends. Uh, how about giving me your paw? Ah! Hey, catch me, you black devil. You insulted him. You hurt his feelings. Well, keep him away from me. It will be a pleasure. I would advise you not to insult him again. Count Craigie is not altogether without influence, as Mr. Cable inform you. Good afternoon. And evening. <laughs> Is he always as nuts as that? Ever since I've been here. How did they let him keep that black Satan? I don't know. I suppose Grimshaw wants to pamper him. He's been here since they opened the place, I understand. Spent about three hours a day getting therapy from Grimshaw. What's his problem? Manic depressive. A little paranoid, too. Mm. How long have you been here, Arthur? Grimshaw's two years. I left for a while, but I couldn't stay away from the junk, so I committed myself again. 
Did you uh, happen to know a patient here named Harlan Ward? Why do you ask that? Do you know him? I met met him socially a few times. Uh, I understand he died here. So the newspapers said. I wouldn't know. Suicide, wasn't it? Was it? You're being pretty careful, aren't you? Mr. Doherty, what would you say if I were to tell you that I don't believe Harlan Ward is dead? What makes you so certain? Harlan Ward used to share this room with us. He slept in the same bed you now use. I see. He was an alcoholic. Doing quite well, too, from what I could observe. We all expected him to go home soon. Then one evening he had a violent fight with Quakey. Quakey accused him of snooping or something. Later that night, Grimshaw and Boyner took him out. Where? They take all the special treatment cases to the charity clinic. It's that small building on the other side of the stone wall. I think they do their surgery cases there. Why did they take him there? I don't know. Confinement, I guess. A few days later, we read about his death. Suicide, they said. Why do you think he's still alive, Arthur? This. About a month ago, I was in the garden next to the wall that separates us from the charity clinic. Suddenly, I thought I heard a sound like a child whimpering. It stopped. A moment later, this note came over the wall wrapped around a stone. Then I'm certain I heard a blow and a scream again like a child. What does the note say? Help me, for God's sake, Harlan Ward. I haven't told anyone yet for fear Grimshaw and Boyner might find out. It might just be some insane prank by one of the charity cases. And yet, why should Dr. Grimshaw want to pretend Harlan Ward is dead? I'm not an oracle, Mr. Doherty. What about this charity clinic? I've always been curious. Grimshaw and Voyner make sure that no patient goes there unsupervised. Many of those who've been taken across like Harlan Ward, I've never seen again. Arthur, how'd you like to have some fun? Like what? Like sneaking out tonight and going over the wall. What do you say? It'd break the monotony a little. I don't know. If there's something fishy going on, it'd be better to find out now, wouldn't it? I suppose there's no real harm in it. Of course not. I'd go alone, but I'll need help scaling that wall. Will you do it? All right. I'll go with you. Dimension X is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by Acme Brand Home Therapy Kits. Your new guide to wellness is almost here when you order an Acme Brand Home Therapy Kit. Books, inspirational posters, hardcore drugs, hypnotic cassette recordings, and a short 2x4 used to knock some sense into you are all just some of the items on the way to your house. And to better healing, thanks to Acme Brand Home Therapy Kits. There's the right way and the Acme way. And now, back to Dimension X. It was shortly after midnight when Kay and I slipped out of the room and made our way out to the garden. Count Crakey was snoring soundly when we left. The wall was about eight feet high, but we made it without too much trouble. Hunt! All clear. Give me your hand and I'll lift you. Careful when you drop. Ready? Go ahead. 
Charity building over there. One of the lights in the basement window. Come on. We'll make a run across the driveway and hide in that clump of bushes alongside the building. Ready? All right. Okay, hold it. Drop flat. What's the matter? Let's crawl over toward the window with the light. Maybe we can see something. Not supposing that this. Listen. Take it easy. Sounds like Grimshaw. Much. Let's get closer. Can you make out what he's saying? All right. Good Lord. What was that? Probably some patient having the DTs. I think it came from that basement window. Let's get over there where I can have a look. Easy. What do I do to get caught now? Just. See anything? Easy. Relax. It's some sort of laboratory. That's right. I can see Grimshaw, Boiner, and someone else with its back toward me. If we're still, we may make out what they're saying. Take it quietly. It will be easier. I warn you. Please, please. It will all be over soon. You won't remember anything. No, I don't want to go. Boiner, give it to him. No, no, no. Shut him up, Boiner. Lord. What is it? Now, come on. We've got to get out of here. What did you see? What did they do to that child? Arthur, that wasn't a child. It was a midget. The smallest midget I'd ever seen. What were they doing? Trying to give it some sort of injection. When it resisted, Boyd and knocked it out. Well, what do you suppose they were doing to it? I don't know, Arthur. All I know is that when it fell, it had the face of Harlan Ward. All the way back to our room, my brain was working like a pinball machine. Only the score wouldn't add up. The pieces were there, all right. A crazy old doctor, a brutal assistant, a private sanatorium, and a midget with a dead man's face. I couldn't figure it out. I thought that when I got back to our room, I'd have some time to think about it. But I'd forgotten about our friend, the happiness boy, Count Craigie. Ah! So I've caught you! Fine. So you've caught us. Now, how about crawling back into the woodwork like a good little count? Well, where are you? Mink hunting. Arthur and I like to go mink hunting at night. It's a funny thing, though. The mink weren't running very good. The grunion were running like crazy, though, weren't they, Arthur? Like crazy, Mr. Doherty. You make fun of Count Craigie. You're lying. I shall report you to Dr. Boynup. Better not, if you know what's good for you. So you threaten me. Me, Count Craigie. World champion gymnast and barbell balancer. I shall scream for help. You heard him? Just knocked him out. What do we do now? Put him to bed. Hope that when he wakes up in the morning, he's forgotten the whole thing. And if he hasn't? They won't take him seriously anyway. I don't think Grimshaw would believe him. Besides which, he doesn't know what we actually were doing. Come on. Let's get him back into bed. I went to sleep in my own room. And the next thing I felt was the sharp jab of a hypodermic needle in my left arm. I started to struggle, but it was no use. Take it. Boyna and another assistant were holding me down. Grimshaw stood over me, the empty needle still in his hand. That's it. (laughs) Be useless to struggle, Mr. Doherty. In a moment, your motor nerves will be completely paralyzed. What's this about, Grimshaw? I might ask the same of you. My good friend Count Crakey informs me... You and Mr. K decided to do some snooping earlier tonight. 
He followed you and saw you climb the wall. Crakey's insane. That is a matter of opinion, Mr. Doherty. Crakey, what is this? Perhaps my assistant, Dr. Grimshaw, would be good enough to explain. Assistant? Yes. You see, I am the actual head of the Grimshaw Sanatorium. Grimshaw? Count Crakey feigns many delusions, Mr. Doherty, but in this case he's telling the truth. Count Crakey is actually Professor Ernst Hassler. Professor Hassler and I worked together in the Berlin Neurological Institute before the last war. Unfortunately, my political affiliations with the Third Reich were under investigation after the war by the War Crimes Commission. However, Dr. Grimshaw managed to smuggle me into this country where I masquerade as a mental patient. Thus, we are able to continue certain experiments which were interrupted by the American army. I can imagine the sort of experiments you've conducted. You and your friend Mr. K will discover their exact nature very shortly, Mr. Doherty. It's a magnificent opportunity to serve science. Then I passed out. And the next thing I knew, I was coming to in a different room. I guessed it was somewhere in the charity building because of the angle of the sun through the windows. They had me in a straitjacket and kept doping me until I lost count of time. I don't know how long it kept up. I remember one day being wheeled along a corridor into an operating room and hearing the voices of Boyner, Grimshaw, and Crakey as if from a great distance. Pituitrin. Pituitrin. Four cc's. Four cc's. How are the measurements? Reducing rapidly. We'll operate at once. If Boyner start the anesthesia. All right, doctor. Commence. Again, I had a blinding headache. After that wore off a horrible sensation of weakness. I began to wonder if Crakey and Grimshaw weren't doing something to drive me insane because I lost all sense of perspective. The room seemed to grow in size. I don't know how much time passed, but one day Grimshaw came into the room with a bundle in his arms about the size of a newborn baby. The bundle was my friend Arthur Kay. Good morning, Mr. Doherty. I brought you a companion. I'm sure you two gentlemen will enjoy each other's company. Let me out of here. Let me out. I couldn't believe my eyes until Grimshaw sat Arthur down on the bed beside me. It was then that I got the real shock. For I realized that what had looked like a tiny bundle in Grimshaw's arms was actually the same size that I was. Then, for the first time, I began to understand what was happening to us. Arthur Kay and I were being made into midgets. We got the full explanation next morning when the eminent Professor Hassler, alias Count Crakey, came in to gloat over us. Allow me to congratulate you, gentlemen. How are you feeling? You stinking monster! Oh, I'm disappointed, gentlemen. Do you not feel privileged to be a part of an experiment that will place me at the very top rank of the world's endocrinologists? What are you doing to us? It has been long established, gentlemen, that dwarfism and giantism result from injury to or malfunction of the pituitary and thyroid glands. The interlock between these glands was thought to be a hormone. I have discovered that this was incorrect. It is an enzyme, an enzyme I isolated some years ago. I was well on the way to synthesis in Germany when the surrender interrupted me. The interruption also limited the number and type of subjects on whom I could experiment. I was forced to find others. Such as Harlan Ward? Mr. Ward was only a control experiment. And now you've done the same to us. No, gentlemen. For you, I have reserved a special privilege. 
You gentlemen will be the first to test the full effects of the enzyme. In short, I intend that you, Mr. K, and you, Mr. Dirty, when the experiment is completed, will emerge as perfectly healthy, normal individuals. Except, of course, that you will be only five inches tall. The days and nights that followed were a living nightmare. A nightmare from which Arthur and I awoke for brief periods to find ourselves in a strange new world. A huge, frightening world where everything was enlarged a hundred times. When we finally emerged, we found ourselves imprisoned in a tiny mouse cage. Judging by the relative size of things, we could not have been more than five inches tall. Now that our senses cleared, we realized that the experiment was at an end. That from now on, it was either escape or be destroyed. Let me help. What was that? What? I, I thought I heard a door slam. 
Mike, you couldn't be back so soon. Hurry up, brother, for God's sake. All right, stand away. We've got a show on it. Ready? Okay. We made it. There goes the door. Come on, we'll make a run for it down the hall. If we can get to the garden, we've got a chance. I smell smoke. The short may have actually started the fire. Come on. Oh, wait a minute. What's up? I have to go back. The, the man is... Don't be a fool. There's no time. Come on. You go ahead. I'll, I'll catch up. Hurry up. I'll wait in the hall. Only a second. structured process that can take time before results are actually possible. But with the Acme brand Home Therapy Kit, we condense that time to a matter of days, with almost no adverse side effects that are worth mentioning right now. Certainly, you might want to take the time, later, when you can afford it. But until then, we recommend you use the Acme brand Home Therapy Kit. There's the right way, and the Acme now, let's return to the thrilling conclusion of Dimension X. This is the record found in a fountain pen cover in the burned-out hallway of Grimshaw Sanatorium. There is nothing to add, except that the fire which destroyed the sanatorium and killed so many of its occupants, including Dr. Grimshaw and Dr. Voina, was definitely of incendiary origin. It is believed by the fire chief that some small creature, either a mouse or possibly a cat, chewed the insulation off the wire and short-circuited the system. The two patients, John Doherty and Arthur Kay, vanished completely after the fire, and their remains were never found. Whether the manuscript which you have just heard is authentic, or whether it was the work of one of the more demented inmates of the sanatorium... We leave to your judgment. You have just heard another adventure into the unknown world of the future. The world of... Dimension... Next week on Dimension X, and the moon be still as bright, the story of the first despoilers of the planet Mars, the men from Earth. Tonight, Dimension X has transcribed Dr. Grimshaw's sanatorium. Adapted for radio by George Lefferts from an original short story by Fletcher Pratt. Featured in the cast were Carl Weber as John Doherty and Roger DeCoven as Arthur Kay. Your narrator was Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman. Engineer Bill Chambers.
Dimension X is directed by Edward King. You have been listening to Dime Store Radio Theater on Sheena's Jungle Room. Brought to you by Mid-Valley Mutations. We hope to see you again next week. Until then, be seeing you. Thank you.